We've been studying Isaiah's prophecy, and we've been in the section of chapter 7 through 12, but uh, tonight we're going to spend our time in the Gospel of Matthew because we're going to look at how Matthew uh, explains and describes the fulfillment of what Isaiah was prophesying. A couple of weeks ago, as well as in our Wednesday class over the past couple of weeks, Uh, We have zeroed in specifically on Isaiah chapter 7, verses 14 through 16, where we see a prophecy given to King Ahaz in trying to get him to put his trust in God and not to fear the two kingdoms, Israel and Syria, these two nations which are in alliance to attack Judah. And so Isaiah declares to King Ahaz, here's the sign that's going to be given to you. There's going to be a woman who's going to bear a child. The child's name is going to be Emmanuel. And by the time that child is able to know right from wrong, the two kings that you fear are going to be put down and deserted. And so we saw in Isaiah's prophecy that he's speaking directly to Ahaz about a sign that would give trust or is supposed to infuse confidence and trust in King Ahaz to not turn to Assyria, but to put his trust in God. Uh, Unfortunately, Ahaz doesn't do that. He does put his trust in Assyria, uh, and that causes then the demise that you read about in those chapters that we've been looking at. But it's not that simple just to read Isaiah 7 and say, say, well, see, look, he was talking about a sign in the days of Ahaz that by the time this child that comes along is able to know right from wrong, those kings will fall because Matthew comes along and says that that prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus. And he quotes it and says the virgin will bear a son and that son's name is going to be called Emmanuel for God is with us. This fulfills what the prophet spoke. And so what I want to do tonight I think is critically important for a number of reasons. So we're going to look at what Matthew means sometimes when he speaks this phrase of this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. The two reasons this is important is one, it gives us an important interpretive grid that we come into the prophecies and we understand what Matthew and other writers are doing when they use words like this to say, well, this prophecy was fulfilled. Well, how is that the case when you read so many times those prophecies And there's no way it's talking about what it's talking about. In the Wednesday class, I gave you the example of Acts chapter 1, where Peter goes out of his way to quote Psalm 109 and says, another will take his office, and clearly that's talking about Judas. And you go, wait a minute, Psalm 109 wasn't talking about Judas at all. And yet here Peter comes along and says, this fulfills what that psalm was talking about. Well, what are these apostles doing? And the second reason this is important, not only for ourselves and understanding the New Testament, but it's important because this has been a key argument to discredit the Bible and to discredit the New Testament. And our understanding of what the writers are doing is very important, not only for our faith, but also for a defense of the gospel. So let's start in chapter 2. I wanted to do so many of these. 
And as the lesson got longer and longer, I cut it back and cut it back and cut it back and cut it back. And so I hope this will give you kind of the, the opening of the door to go research so many of these others. And we're just going to have to take a few of them. We're going to spend our time in chapter 2 of Matthew and just look at, there's a number of prophecies there. We're just going to pick out a couple just for the sake of time. Let's start with verse 15 of chapter 2. In fact, let's, to get the whole sentence. Let's do Matthew chapter 2 verse 14. In speaking about Joseph, and he rose and took the child, that's Jesus, and his mother, that's Mary, by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So here is one of those instances, and we go and see that that is in Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. Now let's read Hosea, and I have it on the screen for you, and you can stay in Matthew if you want, but you're welcome to turn there in your scriptures as well. Hosea Hosea 11 verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. Who is my son in Hosea's prophecy? It's Israel. Israel is the prophecy here. And speaking about Israel, Israel was a child. God says, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called him. And the context is a reminder how Israel was in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. And God says, here's what I had done for my nation. I called them out of Egypt, my child. This was, here is God's son and all that he did for him. But the more that I called them, the more they turned away from me, sacrificing to the idols. But here in Matthew chapter 2 and in verse 15, he says this is, was to fulfill what the Lord spoke by the prophet. But that's not what Hosea was talking about at all. So that's what we're doing is we're going to notice Matthew does this quite a bit. It's not just with Isaiah 7, but he does this in a number of places. What I want us to recognize then, first of all, is that Matthew cannot be saying that Hosea was only talking about Jesus and nothing else. That Hosea is only speaking of a direct fulfillment to Jesus and has no other referent point to anything else. That's not what he's doing. It's clear when you read Hosea that it's really quite the opposite. That he's speaking about what's happening right then, about how Israel as a nation had been put in slavery and God called them out. How God had blessed them and provided for them, and yet they had turned away. That's what Hosea is talking about. And it is this kind of problem that has caused scholars to say things like this, which I hope will help you make yourself aware of why this is an issue, and how we understand the New Testament. Writers like David Cupp says, Matthew shows little awareness that the prophets might actually be delivering oracles of crucial relevance to their original audience. For Matthew to come along, he says, and to say that Hosea's prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus shows that the New Testament writers like Matthew have no concept whatsoever of what the prophets were talking about and give no credence to the fact that the prophet was probably talking about something in his own day and time. And how dare Matthew say this was fulfilled here in Jesus 
when Hosea wasn't talking about that. Boltman says similarly, the writers of the New Testament do not gain new knowledge from the Old Testament text, but they read from or read into them what they already know. So rather than gleaning from what the Old Testament prophets teach, he says what the New Testament writers did was crammed their interpretation into the Old Testament and they're faulty for doing that. It's a pretty common angle that people take. It's actually a pretty common angle even among uh, the Jewish people today in their criticism of Christianity is what they say is, well, you're taking prophecies that weren't talking about Jesus in the slightest and you're making them talk about Jesus and that's not what it was talking about. And I want to nod my head and go, yep, it wasn't talking about Jesus, was it? Interesting. Hosea wasn't speaking about it. Isaiah wasn't speaking about it. So what is the answer to this? That's what I want us to begin to consider. And what I want us to use as a, as a consideration is this phrase typological fulfillment. That's kind of fancy, but you grasp this idea, and we'll, we'll show this in a minute, that we often see there's a lot about types and shadows in the scriptures. There's a lot of things where we see patterns that are repeated. Let me begin by describing what I mean by typological fulfillment, by describing what it's not. It's not dual fulfillment, and I want to kind of keep it away from that uh, with this important idea, is that when we talk about dual fulfillment, sometimes what we mean by that is that Hosea was not only talking about his own events, but he also had a view of Jesus, and he was talking about that too. Or perhaps like Isaiah, that he was talking about his own day and time, but he was also prophesying about something to come. And I don't believe that we can use what we read there, like in Hosea 11, and suggest that Hosea had an idea that one day what would happen is that Herod was going to kill all the baby boys and that's why Jesus was going to go to Egypt for a time and then God was going to call him out of Egypt and Hosea knew all that, it had been revealed to him by God and that's why he said those words. That's the problem, I think, with dual fulfillment is that there's no indication that the writers are seeing the Messiah in some of their prophecies. Not all of them are looking forward to Christ, but talking about their own day and time. And so the idea of typological fulfillment and how that varies from uh, dual fulfillment is that what we're seeing is that these narratives have a pattern. We're seeing a repetition occur as we go through God's Word. Uh, To put it another way, it's not just simply that the events that you read about in the Old Testament are repeated, but they are actually enhanced. There's a greater meaning that is Used an intensification of it, and let me just give you some quick examples of it, just off the, just real quick, just to kind of give you a feel of that. For example, how about John chapter six? That we'll get to one of these days when I stop talking about Isaiah, and we'll go back to John. Well, John chapter six is great because what do we see in Exodus? What we see uh, through Exodus, through Numbers, we see manna, bread falling from heaven. The pattern is repeated. Jesus says, I'm the bread, but it's enhanced. It is intensified. It's not just merely repeated where Jesus comes along and goes, I make bread too, as he does with the feeding of the 5,000. But he amplifies it. He intensifies it and says, wait a minute, I've got something even better than that. And remember, he makes that point in chapter 6. Your forefathers ate that bread and died in the wilderness, but whoever eats the bread that I give will live 
So it's better. There is an intensification of it. John chapter 3, which we already did study, we see in the book of Numbers, the serpent that is put on the pole as the people complain. God said serpents, and they die by the poisonous bites. Moses erects the bronze serpent on the pole. Whoever looks on it may live. Jesus then turns and uses that in John 3 and says, I'm that bronze serpent. He uses the imagery, but he amplifies it because he's not talking about people being bitten by snakes. He's talking about the threat of sin and the death that comes from it. So the imagery is intensified, but repeated. How about John the baptizer? How he's called Elijah. Here is even people that are used as uh, types or symbols that are this repetitive pattern as well. That an Elijah is going to come and yet Jesus speaks of John and says not only is he the Elijah that's come, but he's greater than all the prophets who've ever lived before him. So he's not just simply repeating Elijah, he's greater than Elijah. How about Moses, where Moses says that there's going to be a prophet like me that will arise. Jesus is that prophet, but he's not like Moses exactly. He's greater. He intensifies it. He's better than that. And so you're seeing the scriptures do this in so many instances where the scriptures are saying, here is an event, here is a pattern, here is a person. But not only is it repeated, he comes along and says it's even better. There's an enhancement to it. If we had all the time in the world, how about the whole book of Hebrews? The whole book of Hebrews takes all of the elements of the Old Testament tabernacle system, all about the sacrifices and all about the articles that are in that tabernacle. And the writer of Hebrews comes along and says, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those things. He's better in a sacrifice. He's a better tabernacle. He is better in all of those articles and what he offers. And so we've always recognized these types and seen these shadows. And so what we're doing is just noting that this might very well be the answer as to what Matthew and the New Testament writers are doing when they say that the prophecy is fulfilled in a particular person is not that it is direct, that there is a present meaning to the prophet when he says it, but that that meaning would get repeated and intensified and enhanced the next time around. Let me show you that broadly. Again, I have so much I wanted to share with you, and I'm just going to give you some like rabbit trails to go run down that I hope you'll go look at for yourself. But I want you to consider that the first four chapters of Matthew you reflect this very usage. What Matthew does, it, it mirrors what Israel's history is. Just a reminder about Israel's history. Israel is enslaved in Egypt. The baby boys are being killed. They're going to be cast into the Nile in the days of Moses. What happens? God brings deliverance. They cross the Red Sea and they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Notice that Matthew mirrors that strongly where Jesus is going to be in Egypt. The baby boys are being killed. Jesus' next next recording in Matthew's account is Jesus' baptism. And then he's immediately led by the Spirit to the wilderness for 40 days. There's this repetition that Matthew is drawing. It's not exact. It's an intensification of it. It's not to just simply do it verbatim, but to show that here comes the pattern again, but this time it's even better. It's stronger than what we saw before. And so Jesus becomes the intensified fulfillment of Israel's history. 
And we're going to see that a lot when we go through the Gospel of John. I'm going to help us kind of get our minds around that and our hands on that as we continue to study John. That's the idea when Jesus comes along in John 15 and says, I am the true vine. That's a contrast to Israel. Israel is the failure. Jesus is the true fulfillment of the nation's history. Let's bring this now to Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. Let's come back to Matthew 2 and verse 15. What is interesting is what Hosea does in his prophecy then is strongly tied to what Matthew is reaching for. That Matthew isn't just simply trying to pull one line out of the Old Testament and say, ah, that's what I needed. Uh, And sometimes I feel like the New Testament writers get treated that way uh, as if they needed a proof text for something. And so they just randomly found Egypt and the Old Testament prophets and, ah, that works. Let me throw that here. That's not what they're doing. And and we've spent a lot of time talking about reading the context of the prophecies because so many times that context is also being implied in the fulfillment when the New Testament writer quotes it. So you have historically with Israel, here's Hosea. What's Hosea saying? Hosea is saying that Israel was God's son and had led them out of Egypt. That's what Hosea says in verse 1, had led them by the pillar of fire and cloud. But they went into failure into the wilderness. That's how the story ends for Israel. So here is God's son brought out and delivered, led from Egypt, pillar of cloud and fire. But that all ends in failure when they go into the wilderness They fail God's plan, they fail God's law, and they're left to wander in the wilderness and the people die in the wilderness until the next generation comes along. Matthew is reaching for that now and shows the pattern where Jesus now is the true son of God. He's called out of Egypt and he's led by the spirit into the wilderness, but rather than failing in the wilderness, he succeeds where Israel fails. Israel goes into the wilderness and they die. Jesus goes into the wilderness for temptation and there is success. He is the perfect fulfillment. He is God's obedient son. And so there is the picture is that the pattern's not merely repeated, but it shows an enhancement. It shows an intensification that here is the one where this pattern was seen before that now becomes the fulfillment of what occurred before. So what I'm submitting to you with this first one, this is the long one, we'll go faster for the other ones, it won't be as tough. But for this first one, what Matthew is doing is not saying that Hosea was only speaking about Jesus. That's what he meant when he said, out of Egypt I called my son. No, he's taking what Hosea was talking about, that whole scene. Israel is God's son and how they were called out of Egypt and how they were led into the wilderness but then failed in the wilderness. Matthew is saying that whole pattern, that whole type is now fulfilled in Christ. The pattern has been repeated but it's been intensified, it's been enhanced because Jesus succeeds where Israel previously failed. Okay? Now let's see it again, because Matthew does it again. Just three verses later, he does it yet again. Verse 16 tells us in Matthew chapter 2 that the children are, are, he sends for the edict here and becomes fierce as he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that had ascertained from the wise men. Verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. 
Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Another interesting thing. And this is a direct quotation out of Jeremiah 31, just verbatim from verse 15. Now, what is very interesting about the location of this quotation from Jeremiah is that when you read Jeremiah 31, that whole chapter is all completely filled with hope. If you remember Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, you might have memorized. Remember, that's quoted by the writer of Hebrews. And behold, in those days I'm going to uh, bring about a new covenant, not like the covenant I made with your forefathers. This is the covenant that's going to give forgiveness of sins. So this is a, a whole chapter of hope. And what is really interesting about Jeremiah 31 is there is one verse in that whole chapter that is negative. And it's this one, verse 15. This, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, bitter, weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And the message in Jeremiah is this. Here is this message of hope. You're going to survive the sword. You'll see that like in verse 6 of chapter 31. You'll return to the land. You're going to rebuild. In verse 9 and 10, God is going to gather you like a shepherd. And the morning is going to be turned, uh, your morning will be turned to joy. However, verse 15 stands as this critical cog that says, but before that hope and comfort and restoration occurs, you're going to be judged. You're going to be taken off the land. There's going to be exile. There's going to be punishment for your sins. And so it's going to bring about the death of the people of God. They're going to be killed as the Babylonians come in, as Jeremiah prophesies, and they're going to be be killed. So that's why Rachel is weeping for her children, because her children are going to die when the Babylonians come in. However, that surrounds a whole picture of hope, because there will be restoration, there will be return, there will be survival, and God will bring his people in and he will restore them and give them life yet again. So that's the idea, is that through the judgment and through that death, there's going to be hope, and the future's hopeful for what's going to happen for the nation. That is what Matthew's keen on, as he now pulls this strange quotation from Jeremiah 31, and he wrote us the words, verse 17 of Matthew 2, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Here's another instance where Jeremiah is not talking about the first century. He's writing about what's happening then and there and is saying, you're going to die now, but there is hope in the future, but the present distress is now. Judgment is now. Well, Matthew comes along and uses the same idea. And he uses this and says, now this devastation that God's enemies are currently using, notice that then verse 16, Herod is slaughtering all the male children in Bethlehem. That is going to be reversed by God. It's going to lead to a time of future hope and future restoration. And so though the wicked king is murdering the baby boys, what happens? The Messiah escapes. He makes it to Egypt. And because he escapes the slaughter, now there is hope for the nation. There is hope for the world. Herod is trying to wipe out the future king. And so there is weeping and wailing at that time. As you can imagine, the Bethlehem mothers are upset about this. But that will be turned to hope because God's king will come back and rule and reign. 
So that's what Matthew is doing and why he can say that's being fulfilled. He's not looking back to Jeremiah and saying, you know what, Jeremiah wasn't talking about his day and time at all. That's not what he's trying to indicate. What he's saying is, you know that whole set of circumstances that Jeremiah was talking about, how they were going to suffer and die, but there'd be hope that comes after that? Repeat that. Here it is again, but it's intensified because this is the one who really brings hope. This is the one you've been waiting for who's going to give life to the people, life to the nation. Now is your Messiah King. He is going to save the people and save the world. Now, I really wanted to do verse 23. There's no time. So let me just kind of give you a a piece of it. Because verse 23 is really interesting. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. That was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. And then if you go to your homework, you'll recognize that's not in the Bible anywhere. That prophecy doesn't exist. There's nowhere you're going to go and say, well, there he says it right there. He's going to be a Nazarene. It's not there. Where did that come from? This typological fulfillment answers that. That Matthew is not going back somewhere and saying, now find me that quotation because that quotation is being fulfilled right now. No, that's not his intent. He's going back there and saying, there's a picture back there. There's an event, and it's an Isaiah event about a branch. That imagery is being pulled forward to the Nazarene. So that would take another 30 minutes, and I'm not going to do that to you. But just to give you an idea, this saves us from passages like this where you say, now what prophecy are you quoting? There's not a prophecy to quote. No prophet said that. But there is typological imagery of it. And when we go back to the Old Testament and find that imagery, now we see what Matthew's doing as he's pulling that forward. All right, let's do Isaiah 7, because that's what this is all about in the first place. All right, Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 through 16, as we've already noted, this was assigned to Ahaz. Remember this message that's given to him. The son is going to be born to this young woman, and by the time that child knows right from wrong, the two kings that you fear are going to be deserted. Now the message of that sign is everything. What this was to say is that God is with his people, right? That was one of the things. He'll be called Emmanuel. This is what this means. I'm going to show you that God God is with you. Put your trust in God, Ahaz. I'm with you. Those two kings that you fear will not harm you. They will not destroy you. In fact, by the time this child reaches a certain age, those two will be nothing whatsoever. And so God is to be trusted. God keeps his word and he's going to deliver his people. Now, Matthew chapter 1, notice verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. All right. Now we see really something interesting. And notice we have the repetition. The pattern is repeated. And I want you to notice how immensely, intensely enhanced this time this prophecy is really given here. A couple of things to notice with it. When it's stated in Isaiah chapter 7, the implication is that the woman will call the son Emmanuel. But notice it here in verse 23. Who is calling the child Emmanuel? The world. 
She's not calling him. God is with us. When this one comes, everybody's going to say, God is with us. Emmanuel. And so this becomes a sign to the world. It's not a sign to an individual. It's not a sign only to Mary. It's not a sign only to Joseph. It's a sign for everybody. So this becomes an intensification that the world is in view, that the world is going to recognize that this is the one. Notice the intensification of the miraculous birth that occurs. The son is born to a virgin, and that is explicit all over the place in Matthew. Matthew wants to make sure that we recognize it's a virgin birth. We have it stated to us at the beginning because Joseph wants to put Mary away quietly. They are betrothed. Joseph believes that she has been unfaithful, but being a righteous man that he is, he's going to put her away quietly. So here's implication one, that obviously she is a virgin. Two, it's stated for us very clearly here in this text that she'll be called, a, or that she is a virgin, verse 23. And then we're told even later on in verse 25 that he never knew her until after the child was born. So three different instances, Matthew wants to drive it home. This is a greater fulfillment. The pattern is repeated, but it is intensified. It's not just a young woman this time. It's a miracle. It is a virgin that conceives. And Matthew wants to make sure sure that we see that with the three different ways that he describes it. Second, the intensification goes even further in how he is called Emmanuel. Now, the meaning in Isaiah 7 was this. It proves that God is to be trusted, that God keeps his word, that he delivers his people. But consider how that's an intensification because the message of Jesus being the Emmanuel is certainly shows that God keeps his word and God keeps his promises and we can trust him. But it's way bigger than that because it was actually God with us this time. It wasn't just simply in the days of Isaiah a message to say, God is with you, trust me. Yes, it means that when Jesus comes, but it was actually God in the flesh, God with us. And so Matthew is using it and saying, look at the intensification, look at the enhancement of the pattern. Yes, it's being repeated, but it's even greater. And consider the, 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 uh, the deliverance is even intensified as well. For Ahaz, it was a deliverance from two kings. You fear Israel and you fear Syria, and you're going to be delivered from those two kings. Yes, when Jesus comes, it will be a deliverance of worldly powers as the kingdom of God subjugates all the enemies under his feet. But the deliverance is far greater than that because the deliverance is the stomping out and the subjugation of all the spiritual forces of darkness, of all the problems of sin, as he comes this time and brings a greater deliverance, not just from worldly people, but then brings conquering from spiritual forces and wickedness. So here is what Matthew is doing. So Matthew is not saying Isaiah wasn't talking about his day and time. He's acknowledging that it is at Isaiah's day and time that there was an event that was prophesied that was assigned to Ahaz. 
And what Matthew means by saying this was to be fulfilled then is to say, but something greater has happened. The event has been repeated. The pattern has occurred again, and it's bigger and better. So let me conclude with a couple of things to kind of help us as we tie this together. There are many quotations in the scriptures that are direct to Jesus. For example, just a few verses earlier at the end, middle of chapter 2, uh, Matthew 2, verse 6, You Bethlehem in the land of Judah. That is a direct prophecy. There's no typology there. When Micah gives that quotation, he's not talking about his day and time at all. And you can tell by the context. He's speaking in a future hope. One day there's a Messiah that's going to come. And he's going to be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. So sometimes that occurs. But sometimes the prophecies spoke only to the original audience in which that prophet lived. And we're seeing some of those like Hosea, like Jeremiah, like Isaiah. These are instances where that occurs. And when we see those kinds of things, what we're recognizing is that in the divine foreknowledge of God, he knew that this event would be repeated and it would be enhanced by the coming of Christ. And that's what the New Testament writers are trying to show us. To go back to the critics that we put up on the screen at the beginning of the lesson, it is not that Matthew is reading back into Isaiah or Hosea or Jeremiah and saying, well, let me just infuse my information into it because Isaiah wasn't talking right about that or they were messed up about that. That's not what Matthew's doing. It's not what any of the New Testament writers are doing. What they're doing is acknowledging not only the prophecy, but the circumstances that surround that prophecy. And they're saying that event and that information has now been repeated. And look at the greater fulfillment that's seen in Christ. That's what they're trying to get us to observe. And not trying to get us to reread the Old Testament, but to recognize how God in his foreknowledge is repeating these things over and over again so that we would stand in awe and go, yes, God has had this plan from the beginning. That Jesus is not an accident. The events that happen in the life of Jesus are not accidental. And that's what makes the Gospel of Matthew so powerful. Quotation after quotation after quotation. This is what the prophet spoke. And here's God saying, you see how I showed you that before? I made those events happen in the past so that you'd begin to see what's going to happen when he comes. So that when Christ comes, you'd recognize him as the Messiah because he's fulfilling the patterns that have already occurred. And so when we see bread from heaven and then we see Jesus do it, we go, well, clearly he's the one because we saw that already. When we see him being the fulfillment of Moses, we go, ah, yes, he must be the one sent by God because we see him doing what God has done in the past. And so they're not misusing the Old Testament prophecies. They're showing and identifying and enhancing those prophecies for us. And that's what I think the New Testament writers are trying to get us to deal with. I hope that'll help when you come across other passages like this. There's so many more. I'd love to spend more time. Go on your own trek. Go through the New Testament. And go read these prophecies and go back and don't just simply take the quote and say, okay, out of Egypt I called my son. Go back to the original place. That's what's so great about these uh, uh, cross-references. It'll tell you where it's at. Go back there and check out the context and notice how the New Testament writer is showing a repetition of pattern, but how Christ enhances that. 
and how Christ becomes the ultimate fulfillment of these shadows and types that God was setting up in the Old Testament before. All right, pull your